Heavenly Father, we come to you with thankful hearts today, and we look to you as our provider. We thank you for how you care for our needs, and we trust you to do so in the future. Make our hearts generous that we would live as unto you, giving of our very selves. And we pray that you would take these, our tithes and offerings given to you today, and use them for your name's sake, that your name may be known among all nations. Lord, we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for fear, from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that you would take it now and plant it deeply in our hearts. Cause us to see not only the truth of the resurrection, but all that it means for us in our lives. Lift up Jesus before us today through the preaching of your word, we pray, that we might see him in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I did not plan and coordinate it. This is the second time recently that Clayton and I have not compared notes, but the Lord has seen fit to work uh, through uh, the two of us, which I'm thankful for. Um, I didn't tell him other than my sermon title, He is Risen Indeed, but he, guys, he got you guys all prepped uh, for this. Um, my whole opening was to talk about the fact that Christians all around the world do this, and I know that we do it too, but if you haven't had the experience to travel abroad and worship with believers in other countries, uh, Christians all over do this, and it's a real treat to be able to experience this, to greet one another with Christ is risen, and to hear that he is risen indeed, that affirmation of that shared faith. It's an affirmation not really directed toward the other person. It's an affirmation of what God has done in raising Jesus from the dead. But it serves as a kind of uh, affirmation that we, you know, we're together in this. You know, if you say to a stranger who's an unbeliever, Christ is risen, they might roll their eyes and walk away. But when you say to a believer, Christ is risen, and they respond, he is risen indeed, you know that you have that shared bond in Christ, that common faith. And so I like the practice because it demonstrates what we are called to do in Ephesians 4.15, to speak the truth in love. Now that's something that we know from Ephesians we're supposed to do, but we don't always do it well or we don't always know exactly how to do that. Sometimes instead of speaking the truth in love, we use the truth like a battering ram. 
maybe we don't, but maybe it's been done to us. I see from your looks on your faces, at least some of you, that you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been on the other end of someone speaking the truth not in love, you know how even though the words are true, they can wound, and not in a healthy way. Uh, it's, it's, it's more than just speaking the truth without care. It's more than just an expression of, you know, they're there and walking away. It isn't quoting verses with insensitivity as if the words are some kind of magical spell that we cast over the person and their problem. Have you ever experienced that? Now, we know that God's word is powerful, it's true, it will not return void, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. But have you ever had someone try and use a verse in a way that didn't seem fitting and actually wound you with it? Or have you ever done that to someone else? Maybe you did it with the best of intentions, thought you were saying the right things, and then you realized in the moment, you you don't walk up to someone who's just lost a loved one and say, God works all things together for good. Okay? It's true. God works all things together for good, but it's just not not helpful in that moment. You don't walk up to your neighbors, their house is burning down, and put your arm around their shoulder and say, God works all things together for good. Even though it's true, He works all things together for good. Do you understand the distinction? Proverbs captures this uh, so well for us in that it says that a word fitly spoken is like, Apples of gold in settings of silver. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in setting of silver. There's a word picture for you. That's what our words need to sound like or look like if we're, if we're thinking of a word picture. And so when I think of an example, uh, we could think of many examples in the life of Jesus. We think of how he interacted. Now, some people might be quick to say, wait, wh- wait about what, how he spoke to the Pharisees, how he spoke to the Sadducees, how he spoke to the, 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 the legal people of the land, the religious people of the land. But he doesn't speak that way to his sheep. And the harshest thing that I can think of, of is the example to Peter, uh, get behind me, Satan. I mean, that was pretty firm. But is that the way that he continued to speak, even though that was appropriate at that time? We're going to look a little bit today or at least hint at what he does to Peter after Peter betrays him. The Lord speaks to us as a shepherd, and it, and it ought to affect then uh, the way that we speak to other people. And I think in my own life, when I think of speaking the truth in love, I sometimes make the mistake of speaking the truth while I'm thinking it's love. And my, my mistake there is that... <clears throat> My children aren't to smile at me at this point, but I'm still harsh, or I still have ulterior motives, or I'm still being selfish, even though what I'm saying in the moment is true. See, speaking the truth in love always cares for, always ministers to, it always builds up, and it always blesses. It points that person to know that God loves them. And that doesn't mean that words don't hurt at times. The truth doesn't hurt at times. But there's a difference when it's spoken in love. There is a distinction that we must make. Now, I'm not saying that we are to lie to to one another, to sugarcoat things, or to speak, in a sense, hypocritically, to, to flatter people or even to be patronizing to people, to just say things that are sweet all the time. But we also have to be careful that our words don't harm that we don't use them as a weapon. A harsh word does what? Stirs up anger. 
But the writer of Proverbs there doesn't say it stirs up only anger. We know that a harsh word can do a lot of damage. It can not only stir up anger, it can lead a person to despair. It can leave a wound that doesn't heal very quickly. How many of us have wounds from our parents of things they said to us so many years ago or someone else, someone that that loved us? And how many of us have made the same mistake, saying something harsh in a moment of anger, and we left a scar that will not heal? The truth that is spoken in love looks more like a surgeon's scalpel. It is precise and it brings healing. Words spoken in love looks more like that. If you've ever been in a situation where you needed surgery, specifically if you had something in you that needed to get out, like a bad appendix or a bad gallbladder, you know that the wound that the surgeon brings to relieve you of that sickness, it will hurt. But it is precise, and it is designed to ultimately bring healing, and in some cases like that, save your life. That's how words spoken in love are to appear. So let me suggest that the truth spoken in love, or to use a... There's a broader biblical category that we could put this under. Showing brotherly affection depends on the following. First, an understanding of Scripture. Now, this doesn't mean that we know everything about Scripture. Guess what? None of us do. So many of us, myself included, are intimidated at times to enter into a conversation with someone else because we don't know it all. It's okay. We'll get to the second point in a minute. That is, we have the Holy Spirit. But we do need a growing and dynamic understanding of the Scriptures. We need to know it. And if you've ever been in a situation where you have longed, you think to yourself, you're in a conversation with someone, and you think to yourself, oh, I wish I knew more Scripture. I wish I could recall more Scripture. You understand the importance of having a growing understanding of God's Word. Now, it's not just that we memorize words and we, like I said before, we, we kind of cast them like some kind of magic spell. But understanding God's Word means that we know biblical words and have a biblical understanding of what those words mean. Okay, A growing understanding, a growing knowledge of the Scripture means that we not only know the biblical words, but we have a biblical understanding of what those words mean. We not only know what they are, but we know what they mean and what they implicate. And so when we, when we look at the second point, which I've already told you is we are dependent on the Holy Spirit, uh, those two, you can see how those two things fit together. We need the Spirit's wisdom to know not only what to say, sometimes what not to say, but how to say it, how to speak it. This requires the indwelling work of the Spirit. This isn't a class you go to. It's not a book that you read and memorize and then put into practice. We need wisdom in each and every moment to know what to speak, know when to remain silent, know how to speak it. Again, a fitly word spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. That's what it's going to look like. And so the Spirit is absolutely essential in being able to do this. The third thing is a posture of humility. We're not the Holy Spirit. For everybody who's fallen asleep already, if your spouse didn't just elbow you, let me say it again, we are not the Holy Spirit. Okay, don't try and be that. Let the Spirit play the Spirit's role. Every believer has the Spirit of God indwelling them. Let the Holy Spirit do their work. This means we don't come with an air of superiority. 
but with humility and gentleness. We speak words with kindness. We are tender-hearted toward one another because we know that we have been forgiven much and we need the forgiveness of our Savior. And so this means that we're willing to repent when we mess up because guess what? We will. Every one of us will misspeak, your pastor included. There will be times that I say the wrong thing or I say it at the wrong time or I say it in the wrong way or I fail to say what I should say. And we have to be willing to forgive one another. And if you've ever been on the receiving side of a word unfitly spoken, but you know that the person was intending good, they just kind of goofed it up, be willing to forgive. I hear so many people that are mad at another believer because they said something poorly timed in a moment of grief or hurt. Okay, they did. But be willing to forgive them because guess what? You and I have done the same thing. So we're not only coming in a posture of humility, not only willing to confess when we do mess up, but we're also willing to forgive. So the truth is always true, but it can be used as a weapon, and we need to be careful to avoid doing so. So we need to know Scripture, rely on the Spirit, and um, serve with a posture of humility uh, as we approach another person who is hurting, as we speak into another person's life. Now, you're probably thinking, what is Seth talking about? Because has he forgotten it's Easter? (laughs) I didn't forget. Here's where I'm going. Two reasons why I'm talking about this today. Two reasons why I gave you the three points right up front instead of putting them at the end. First, in this example uh, or this account of the resurrection, we see an example of words spoken with kindness and gentleness from the angel to the women. The angel is God's messenger. That's the primary role that, that humans, when they encounter angels, uh, it's, it's because the angel's bringing a message. And so in this case, the angel is delivering a message, and the angels emulate the, the one that sends them. And so in this, we see the example of how God speaks to us in gentleness and in kindness. But the other thing I want us to see is not just that this is an example, but that we need the resurrection power of Christ to be able to do this. We don't have this within us. We don't have the uh, not only the ability but the discipline to do this because our hearts are so selfishly motivated. The the, the moment we have the best intention to, to speak kindly, I can't tell you the number of times that I have gone to an extended family function with this kind of mantra driving up the driveway, I will not be a jerk, I will not be a jerk, I will not be a jerk. I, and then as I leave, Heavenly Father, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. It's, it happens every time. Why, why, why? Because our hearts are fickle. They're selfishly motivated. We want what we want. And so apart from the power of the risen Savior at work within us, we will not bear such fruit in love for one another. Now again... This is Easter, and we are certainly gathered with the resurrection at the forefront of our minds. I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, but I also don't want to treat today as some kind of history lesson, that we gather together and we go through the, 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 the narrative of what happened, the ladies that came, the tomb, he wasn't there, the angel, and they left, as if it's just a piece of history that we know. It is that, but it isn't just that. I want us instead to see all that is ours because Christ has been raised from the dead. 
We know that it means that the last enemy, which is death, has been destroyed. We know that it means the grave has no power because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and we too will be raised. We know that sin has now been defeated and the atonement has been made, which is validated by the resurrection. So in terms of our justification, the resurrection is this crowning hallmark. It's, it's the proof that, that God accepted the death, the atoning death of Christ on the cross. It's proof that the cross was sufficient. And so we have been justified before God. But the resurrection means more. The resurrection means not only something for our justification, it means something for our sanctification. And that is, Easter is not the only day we ought to be thinking about the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 6.4 tells us that as a result of the resurrection, we walk in newness of life. Romans 7 instructs us that Christ was raised that we might bear fruit. Romans 7.4. In Romans 8, we're reminded that, God was, or that Jesus was raised uh, and is now seating, uh, seated, interceding on behalf of us. We have one who is a great high priest who is interceding on our behalf. Acts 3 tells us, that God raised Christ from the dead to turn us away from wickedness. In Acts 13, Paul preaches the resurrection of Jesus at Antioch, saying, He whom God raised up, by Him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The resurrection frees us. Later on, Paul's in Athens in Acts 17, and he tells us that the resurrection gives us assurance. It gives us a confidence that what God has said He will do, He does do. He completes what He starts. That's just a handful of the, of the implications of the resurrection in our life. We can make a list that is much longer than that. In other words, the resurrection is not just important for us as we face death. The resurrection matters here, right now, in this life. And so I want to circle back then to Romans 7, 4 and talk about the benefit of bearing fruit. Christ was raised that we might bear fruit. And I want to focus specifically on the fruit of love, gentleness, and kindness. Now, the epitome of truth in our lives, from a human standpoint, when we think of the truth, we often think of defending the truth, of arguments, of statements, of propositions. But as believers, we know that the epitome of the truth in our life is not making an argument. It's actually the fruit of the Spirit. That, that's, that's what the proof that the truth, that we've grasped the truth, that the Spirit is producing fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what it looks like when we know the truth. And so I want us to zero in on, on three aspects of that fruit, love, gentleness, and kindness. Now, I can tell you, Mark's narrative, his whole gospel is the shortest gospel, so his Resurrection narrative is also the shortest, so, so I'm, this is going to be very brief. But let's look briefly at the narrative itself. In verse 1, we come to the end of the Sabbath. It's after Jesus' crucifixion. This is Saturday evening. If you've ever been in Jerusalem, or if you've been in the Holy Land, it's this way. The whole land shuts down, even in our own modern day on Friday evening. But specifically, uh, one time we were there, Leslie and I stayed in the city on a Sabbath. And it becomes eerily quiet. So the night before, you can't sleep because we're right over one of the main streets and everybody's out and about doing all kinds of things. But the next night, we couldn't sleep because it was so quiet. Uh, because everything shuts down. And it stays that way throughout Saturday. But then on Saturday evening, the shops open. 
The restaurant's open. And people come out with almost this sense of celebration after the Sabbath. And all of the noise and all of the excitement returns to the city. It's in this context that Mary and Mary Magdalene and Salome go to the market to buy the spices. But they don't feel like celebrating because Jesus has died. And their reason for going is to buy spices. They want to honor him by anointing his body with these aromatic spices, as you might imagine... In that warm Palestinian climate, a dead body didn't fare too well. It became stinky pretty fast. And so this was a sign of honor. And so they went on this mission then to buy these spices that they might go the next morning and and anoint the body. And so they head out. Now, some of the gospel accounts talk about them heading out before the sun rose. And then this one mentions that the sun has already come up. I think they probably started out before dark. And by the time they got there, the sun was up. I think it's also important to remember the lay of the land. So the Mount of Olives sits to the east of Jerusalem. So as the sun breaks the horizon, you have tons of ambient light, but it's that, it's that early morning kind of twilight because the sun doesn't shine brightly really until it gets up above the Mount of Olives. And so that's the context. It's this maybe misty kind of early morning light that we see in verse 2 that they're going now, they're heading to the tomb, they're running through the paths and the, and the streets to get there. And along the way, they wonder and discuss with each other, what about the stone? It was a big stone. Mark tells us that. He points it out. And the women were aware of it because they were there when he was buried. Mark 15, 47 talks about these three ladies being there when Jesus was laid in the tomb. So they knew it was there. They're going anyway. They have no idea how they're going to roll it away. And as they get there, they see that it's not going to be an issue at all. The stone has already been rolled away. And they go into the tomb. And Mark's style of writing is he puts us in the, the, the people's uh, shoes, so to speak. Um, he gives us their context. And so we know from the other gospel accounts, there are a lot of other things that happened in and around this time. But the way that he's writing is he's putting us in their place that we might have their experience. And so they turn to the right as they enter the tomb and they see a young man sitting dressed in a white robe, according to verse 5. He doesn't call him an angel. The other gospel writers do. But we know enough from that description that this is what this is. And they clearly knew that it was an angel because of their reaction. They were filled with fear. And we can understand this. Every time a person is uh, encounters an angel, that's their reaction. It's, it's not the cute little chubby cherub that we might see in the gift book or the gift shop uh, or the bookstore. This is something that is alarming to them. Even though the angel appears as a human, there's something about it. We don't know what it is. Something about it that startles them and they know this is not a mere human. The other thing is we see every, almost every time an angel appears to a human, the words are the, the starting words are the same. Fear not. Or in this case, uh, do not be alarmed, which is in essence the same thing. Don't be alarmed. Verse 6. Words of peace. Anytime a, pos- a person in a position of power speaks kindly to another person, it's, it is a, it's an act of love. Because the angel didn't have to do this. The angel could have been like, come on, chop, chop, get out of here. You know he's not supposed to be here. He already told you, go on, get the disciples. You guys knock this off. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Right? There's none of that. There's, there's the kind of gentleness that you might expect when you know, a loving parent comes and corrects a child and steers them back on the right path and gets them going in the right direction. That's what we see here in the angels speaking to 
the, the, the women. He goes on to say, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Again, notice the loving, gentle words that, that the, the angel uses here with these ladies. First, he confirms the identity of the one they're looking for. It's Jesus and not just any Jesus. It is Jesus of Nazareth, and not just any Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Jesus of Nazareth who was just crucified. Right? You haven't made a mistake. You didn't come to the wrong tomb. You're at the right place. This is where Jesus was laid. And he invites them to come and to look. He tells them, he's, he's not here. He's risen. He's, he, just as he told you, he is no longer dead. Look. See where he was laid. You remember a couple days ago, you were here. You saw this. This is where he was laid. You remember? This is it. He's no longer here. No mistake. Body wasn't stolen or moving. They're not at the wrong tomb. They've come to the right place. And then the angel sends them out on a mission. Go tell the disciples. Not only that he's been raised from the dead, but that Jesus will meet them in Galilee as he told them. And so here, these ladies are the first to be entrusted with the message of the resurrection. They are now sent out with this to tell the disciples... And it's interesting here that Peter is mentioned specifically. You remember how Peter reacted at the death of, of Jesus, particularly at the trial before his death. He told Jesus, I will never deny you no way. And Jesus said before the rooster crows three times. Uh, and sure enough, not once, not twice, but three times Peter denied him. And so from a human perspective, we might think that Peter was forever disqualified from service. But here the angel through the women, it sends encouraging words to Peter that he might know that life isn't over. And from John's gospel, we do know that Peter was restored to the ministry, that he was um, uh, restored in the relationship with Christ, that he was allowed to be one of the vital leaders in the early days of the church. See, the, the resurrection is this continual reminder of the lavishness of Christ's forgiveness to us, that God forgives untold times. And this is possible because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Our forgiveness has been paid for. It isn't just that God said, I'll overlook it. The the price has been paid. Sin and death have been overcome that we might be restored and made right with God. The angel then reminds the ladies that Jesus is going to go before them to Galilee, just as he said. Uh, in Mark fourteen twenty seven, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so Jesus told the disciples exactly what they would do, that they would run. And guess where the disciples are right now while all this is happening? They're in hiding. The women were the ones who were brave, who came to the tomb. The disciples are still in hiding, but yet... Jesus reaches out to them through the angel, sends the message to them, and, uh, and, and tells them, I will go before you to Galilee. And so the angel reminds them to remind the disciples. At this point, they leave, and then Mark tells us in the condition that they left. He puts us in the, 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 the experience that the women had. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, from other gospel accounts, we know there's more to the story, but again, we're getting the immediate experience that they had, and we can understand why. What a shock 
this experience was for these ladies. They went there with the intention. They thought Jesus was still dead. They went to anoint his body. None of this was in their frame of mind. So they're in really in shock. Um, now, we know later that their shock and their fear and their astonishment would turn to joy, that they would change as the truth settled in, that they would be captured by that. We know that as that truth settled in, that they would then not say uh, nothing. They would actually speak. They would tell. They would do what the angel instructed them to do, and they would give the message to the disciples. But again, Mark focuses our attention on where they were. They fled, trembling, seized with astonishment, and were afraid, saying nothing. We can understand this. Uh, if we've ever had the opportunity, and I would just mention this, if you have the opportunity to come alongside someone who's in the shock of sin, whether it's their own sin, the sin of someone against them, or just uh, living in a fallen world, the effects of sin, and you come alongside someone, a believer, and they are in a, case, in, in a state that's similar to this, full of fear, trembling, astonishment, in shock, remember this story that you might treat them tenderly. Because when we're hurt by our own sin, by the sins of others, or by living in a fallen world, sometimes we say things, we do things, we react in a way. I remember when my sister, and I've probably said this before, but when she was grieving the loss of her daughter, who lived only seven hours, uh, she told me afterwards, I was a young pastor at the time, she told me afterwards, remember this, she said, I, I didn't stop believing I didn't doubt what was true. I just didn't want to hear everything right at once. She said, all I wanted to hear was, I'm sorry and I love you. And those words have stuck with me. So my point in saying all that is remember the shock that these ladies were in. This isn't the end of the story. Remember the disciples who were in hiding, cowering, in fear. This isn't the end of the story. All of these people, as the truth settled in, the truth captured them. And Jesus restores them. When we grasp the reality of the resurrection, we too are overcome by incredible emotion. The one who died for our sins, who proclaimed on the cross, it is finished, was saying that the price has been paid. The atonement has been purchased. The righteous requirement of our holy God has been met. But he didn't remain in the grave. Early that Sunday morning, the Father crowned the achievement of Jesus' sacrificial work by raising him from the dead. Andrew Peterson sings, His heart beats, his blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats, now everything is changed, because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins, and his heart beats. As that body was returned to life, the Father declared to one and all that our justification had been achieved in one. And so for you who have yet to believe, hear the call of the gospel. You can be made right with God by faith in the one who laid down his life, but didn't remain dead, but was raised up. You can be cleansed from all of your sin by putting your faith in him today. Romans 4.25 states, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised that we may be made right with our God. And so the emphatic phrase, it is finished, that Jesus pronounced on the cross is now crowned by the same emphatic phrase, he has risen. And we all with grateful hearts can express with joy, he is risen indeed. The resurrection of Jesus is not something that we simply remember, that we simply recall details of, that we talk through. 
It means something in every moment of our lives because it is, it is transforming us. Jesus was raised that we might walk in newness of life. Not only is he the first fruits of the res- resurrection and that one day we will all be raised to walk in everlasting life, we have been raised now. We have been seated with him in the heavenly places as we read this morning. Ephesians 2, 4, 7, But God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His resurrection power is at work in and through our lives that we might live unto him through that same power, displaying the immeasurable riches of His grace. But not only is that power available to us in living lives for His glory, Peter explains that this power is to move us in how we relate to one another, in gentleness, in kindness. Peter writes, "...knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so may we be that people who love each other from a pure heart. We cannot do this in our own power. We cannot love truly and fully in our own strength. It is only looking to the resurrection power of Christ that we can do this. And so may we be refreshed today to walk in the newness of life secured for us by the resurrection of Jesus. May we strive in bearing the fruit of the Spirit of the resurrected Christ who indwells each of us who believe. May we be comforted by the reality of our resurrected King who is interceding before us now in heaven. And may we walk in the freedom that is ours through our resurrected Savior whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. It is He who speaks to us today and says, as we've read in Revelation, Behold, I am making all things new. Christ is risen. risen Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection. And I pray now that as, as these words settle into our hearts, that they would stay and impact. That you would use your word to speak to us, to help us to understand. The resurrection is not just an event that happened in history that we know about or even that we say we believe in. But the resurrection is the crowning achievement that proves what Christ has done is sufficient. The resurrection is pointing us forward to the hope of new life, that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. But not just that, Lord, the resurrection of Christ means something here and now. That you, our Savior, your resurrection power is at work within us. And we pray that we would not only understand that, but that we would look to you for that power. That we might live lives not only pleasing to you, but that would fit in that category of brotherly affection. We talk about so many things today that that might uh, be pleasing unto you. But Lord, as we've looked specifically 
at the example of how you through your angel treated those ladies in that moment of crisis with gentleness and with kindness, demonstrating your love for them. May we be a people who as we go from here today, we might be compelled by the love of Christ to treat others equally in love, showing kindness and gentleness in the way that we speak to one another. May we be willing to shoulder up against those who are hurting, to bear one another's burdens, to not turn and walk away from those who are walking through the the shock of the effects of sin in their life. But may we come alongside and may we shoulder those burdens together. And as we do so, Lord, would you help us to speak the truth in love, to not use the truth as a battering ram to bruise, but to speak the truth the way a surgeon applies his scalpel with precision to bring healing. Would you do that in our lives? Lord, we're all about to get some practice because most of us are going to go eat with family right now. So would you help us in the coming moments to do that? But not just today, Lord. In the coming days and in the coming weeks, would you quickly bring your word to mind that we might be a people whose words are like apples of gold and settings of silver that others might hear those words and realize the hope that is within us, that they might ask questions that we might answer to give the reason for the hope within, that Jesus might be glorified, that you may draw many to saving faith in him. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.